This has been like the oddest message for me to prepare for. Like it's been really in my heart, stirring in me, but yet never, I don't know, it just didn't come together the way they usually do. And then the weather turned out so oddly, and I said, God, just bring the right people that you want to hear this message. And I just feel a really neat piece about it. And then Mike, in leading worship, said something that just, I mean, it's kind of the essence of what this is about. So the Holy Spirit is very good to connect hearts together. But when he said about waiting, you know, that's a big thing. A lot of us are disappointed at Christmas time because Christmas, for everything it's supposed to be, ends up leaving us disappointed. Anybody ever feel that when it's over? All the hype? And I think really at the core of it is because Christmas, it, it isn't the end. Christmas is just the beginning of what God is doing. It's not the end result. I was thinking about that this morning. I don't know how many of you were here and heard Dana Hewing sing so beautifully her song, Silent Night. Wow. It was amazing. But as she was singing, and I thought about the song, Silent Night, and the somber tone that goes with it and the peacefulness of it, and I thought, Silent Night is only the precursor to a very loud and glorious day that's coming. You see, and so because I've been advised by a social media person that I need to post the Hope and Passions Facebook page every two hours, I've been really reading a lot and collecting a lot of statements to to keep it going. But um, this afternoon I sat down, I was thinking of Dana singing that song, Silent Night, and I was thinking of the fact that what God is really saying is it's not to stay in the silent night. The Christmas story leads to something bigger. And here's what I wrote down. I put, silent night of long ago will give way to the resounding day of yet to come. See the difference? Silent night of long ago will give way to the resounding day of yet to come. When the humble Jesus of the manger re-enters the world as mighty Christ of the universe. From obscure birth without fanfare to angelic trumpets and loud voices proclaiming the inversion of a godless world to the glorious kingdom of God. He who saved us with his death will finally rule us with his life. You know, that's what it's about. And there's there's this, I don't know, this spiritual theme that's kind of fallen all over the youth group lately in terms of I said to the youth group and to the leaders last Wednesday we have been praying for our youth group to really grow close to Jesus Christ to really start making an impact to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and to understand what that means and to go out and do business for his kingdom so they are out in their public schools and they're being witnesses and they're integrating their faith like never before. They'll testify to you themselves like never before. And what I said to all of us was, as youth leaders and the students, I said, one thing we as leaders did not anticipate when we prayed this for you was that the enemy was going to attack. And I said something this morning in the announcement, which which I want to reiterate and make sure that everybody understands. You can make two mistakes about the devil. You can make too much of him or you can make too little of him. And that's an important thing to understand because many Christians make too little of the spiritual battle that's going on and many Christians make the devil too big. Now the difference between the devil and God is you can make the devil too little and you can make him too big. With God, you can make him too little But you can never make him too big. Amen? And so the thing that's been impressed on my heart, and I, you know, this kind of corroborates with the hearts of some other people in Norman Alliance churches, there is, there's a spiritual battle going on, but it's going to burst, it's bursting on the scene something wonderful and something big. But it's a battle nonetheless. And we're engaged in it. And it's that waiting zone. I mean, we're in the waiting zone between what God has accomplished for us already and what he's going to deliver and culminate one day. And is there anybody in the sanctuary tonight that would say, that's a rough place to be? 
Anybody feel like that sometimes? Feel that stirring? You're in that battle. You're in that waiting zone. And so what happened was God led me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which just for a little bit of background, Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica, who we can identify with them in this sense. They're a little bit confused about the second coming of the Lord. They're a little bit confused as to whether his second coming has, has already started, has it already begun, you know, what happens to people who have already died. And they had all these questions, and Paul was attempting to answer them, and they were a bit confused. But the thing that was going on to the Thessalonians was they were being severely persecuted for their faith. And I mean persecuted in a major way, like loss of life, imprisonment family members killed, you know, so serious persecution. And so Paul is writing to them, and he's trying to clear up some things that they don't understand about the second coming. But you can understand why these people might have thought the day of the Lord had already come. Because, like, when you're living under threat of being beheaded or tortured, you might think, is this the tribulation already? And so Paul is going to be, he's going to answer their questions and set them straight, but he's going to be gentle with them in the sense that he's going to compliment them in the beginning. And I had a principal who taught me this a long time ago. He said, when you go to parent-teacher conferences and you're talking about little Johnny to little Johnny's mom and dad and you have something negative to say, you always use the Oreo principle. Say something good then something hard, then something good, okay? That's good psychology, and that's what Paul does here in 2 Thessalonians. So this is where we're going to start. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians, and then we're going to move back to Exodus and up to Revelation. So let's, let's pray before we get started. God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you unite our hearts, and I praise you for the message that you've given this evening, Lord perhaps a little bit different of a message, and and Lord, we know that what you have planned is always good and always right, and I know that you've gathered this particular group of people together because these are the ones, myself and them, who need to hear this particular message, so help us, God. Help us to be serious about you. Help us to understand your truth. And have what we need in the difficult days in which we live. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at verse 3. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, again, who are confused about the coming of the Lord and under severe persecution. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Two reasons. He says, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So he gives them this compliment, and it's sincere. He says, your faith is growing, and that's a good thing, and your love for one another is growing. And I just want to stop there and say that in Christianity, you're either going forward or you're going backward. Okay, so you should either feel this pressing in your soul that you're growing closer to the Lord. Here's the question you ought to ask yourself. Am I closer to Jesus today than I was yesterday? Am I closer to Jesus today than I have ever been? And if the answer to that is no, I'm not moving closer, then you are actually moving farther away. And you're in dangerous territory. So he compliments them. He says, your faith is growing, and also your love for one another is growing. And, and I, wa- I just want to emphasize that, too. You cannot love God and not love your brother or sister in Christ. Did Jesus say that somewhere in the Bible? Does anybody? You might know, not know the reference, but what does he say? What's that? He says, love your neighbors yourself. He also said in John chapter 13, he said um, somewhere down around in the the 30s, he says, um, this new commandment I give to you that you love one another, right? And he says, as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. So, you know, some people say, well, I just can't love her or him because she drives me crazy. He, He makes me crazy. He's way out of line, blah, 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 blah. Well, really, because every time I was out of line and I was not so, God loved me. Amen? Says you ought to love one another. And the Bible also says in the book of 1 John, a very harsh statement. God says, if you claim to love me that you cannot see, but you do not love your brother or sister in Christ whom you can see, you are a liar. That's harsh. Okay. 
So, so Paul first compliments the people of Thessalonica. He says, your faith is growing and your love for one another is increasing. And that's a good thing. Then he says in verse 4, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, because we're going on these missionary journeys and we're telling everybody, we're boasting about you because of your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, I want to talk about this because two words are used. When it says your persecutions, it means specifically to be persecuted because of your walk, your testimony for Jesus Christ which we know there are people all over the world right now who are literally suffering that, right? Pastor Abedini not being the only one, although he's one that we know of. And it's a travesty to me the way we just sit around and watch television and do our thing and we do not pray about that situation or other situations like it. We're completely unaware. But God is saying you're being persecuted. And I want to tell you on a very small scale, we have youth coming into youth group every week who tell us how unsaved and ungodly students and teachers at school are slighting them, persecuting them for being Christians. That falls under persecutions because it's something that's happening because you're a Christian. But when he says also under afflictions, that word afflictions in the Greek means any kind of trouble that would come to a human being who lives under the sun. Like you get headaches, you struggle with arthritis, your kids are bad, your spouse mistreats you, the car breaks down, you know, there's, a, there's an ice storm, okay? That means afflictions. So he says, while you're going through all these things, he says, we boast because of your steadfastness in your faith in the middle of all these things that you're going through. Now, that word steadfastness is a really cool word, and it means to be unswerving no matter what's coming at you. So I'm a visual person, so I'm picturing what Paul is saying is, here's a Christian, you know, and you're walking through life, and there's a couple things going on. First of all, the enemy is throwing darts at you left and right, persecuting you for your faith, trying to get you off track, trying to discourage you, trying to tempt you to sin. So you're being, darts are being thrown from the left and right at you, and then generally, as the Bible says, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, amen? So you're walking along and your darts are being thrown at you by the enemy from left and right trying to take you down. Rain is falling all over your head. You've got troubles and trials and persecutions and tribulations coming, it seems, from every direction. Does anybody ever feel like that or is it just me? Because what I said this morning is really important. If you're not feeling the enemy digging at your life, you're not effective enough for Jesus Christ. And we're going to, I'm going to show you that in the, in the story of the Exodus. But here's the deal. So he has these people walking through, and they're being attacked, and they're going through problems and difficulties. And he says, unswervingly, you're keeping your eyes fixed on God, and you will not give up. You just keep going. You just keep persevering. You keep looking towards the prize. You're not letting this dissuade you. And the reason I think that word steadfastness has lost its ring for us is because we live in such a society of comfort, okay? And, and I mean spiritual comfort, too. The gospel that's being preached in America today, in a large part, is come to Jesus because he will make you what? Comfortable. He'll make you feel good. Get a free pass out of hell and then play the Monopoly game, you know, free ticket out of jail and then just run around and collect as much stuff as you can and have a happy life. And I say to God all the time, why do you always put these messages on my heart? Why do you make me, like, why do I, I just feel driven to proclaim the whole truth of the gospel. That is not the whole truth of the gospel. That's not what we're called to. Now, A.W. Tozer, and this is a good title for one of his books. He's pretty, anybody read A.W. Tozer? He's pretty fiery, you know, and this is a book called Fiery Faith, and there's a section in here. I was reading this the other day after I had prepared this message, and I thought, he's talking about steadfastness in the first century. So listen to what A.W. Tozer, who lived, you know, he was writing in the early 1900s. Here's what he said about steadfastness in the early church. He said not only did they continue, they continued steadfastly. So wrote Luke. And the word steadfastly is there to tell us that they continued against serious opposition. Steadfastness is required only when we are under attack. 
mental or physical. And the story of those early Christians is a story of faith under fire. The opposition was very real. Then he goes on to describe the United States and how we aren't really undergoing persecution. And so he goes on to say that to make converts here in America, we are forced to play down the difficulties and play up the peace of mind and worldly success enjoyed by those who come to Christ. We assure our hearers that Christianity is now a proper and respectable thing and that Christ has become quite popular with political bigwigs. I see, I have a, I have a, a partner back there that's shaking her head. Yes, this is really big. Listen to this. Come to Christ because he's popular among the political bigwigs, well-to-do business tycoons, and the Hollywood swimming pool set. Okay? Thus assured, hell-deserving sinners are coming in droves to accept Christ for what they can get out of him. goes on for a little bit more, and I won't read the whole thing. Then he says, we will never be completely honest with our hearers until we tell them the blunt truth that as members of a race of moral rebels, they are in a serious jam and one that they cannot get out of easily. If they refuse to repent and believe in Christ, they will most surely perish. Now get this. And if they do turn to him, the same enemies that crucified him will try to crucify them. One way they suffer alone without hope. The other way they suffer with Christ for a while. But in the midst of their suffering, they enjoy his loving consolation and inward support and are able to rejoice in tribulation. Now, those first believers turned to Christ with the full understanding that they were espousing an unpopular cause that could cost them everything. They knew they would henceforth be members of a hated minority group with life and liberty always in jeopardy. Shortly after Pentecost, some were jailed, many lost all their earthly goods, a few were slain outright, and hundreds were scattered abroad. They could have escaped all this by simply denying their faith and turning back to the world. But they steadfastly refused to do so. Okay? Now, I think what Tozer's done is given us a picture of we need, this is in the Bible, we need to have a steadfast heart. And so many Christians want to crumble and give up because life is not easy. The struggle is not easy. Right, Joe? You're with me. I can see the couple. It's not. It's not. The struggle is not easy. And when you come to Christ and you exit the kingdom of darkness and you enter the kingdom of his beloved son, you better bet your bottom dollar that the enemy is going to chase after you because his kingdom is suffering damage now. Amen? Okay? So this is what's happening here. So watch this. So he says, all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're doing, you're steadfast. You keep the faith. Now, when he talks about faith, I just want to, I want to go to one other chapter here. I want you to turn, go further back in your Bibles to Hebrews, just a few pages. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Great Hall of Faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're given a definition of faith here and a description of faith here. Now, unfortunately, again, today in our society, a lot of people would say, faith, faith is name it and claim it. That's what faith is. You believe what you want, you know, what you expect God to give you. You trust and you stand on that word and you speak it and God gives you exactly what you want him to give you. Hmm. Okay. Try to find that for me here in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great description of faith. Here's what faith is described as in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things that we don't actually see. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here's the crux of faith. Faith grabs hold of the unseen because the unseen is more real than the visible. Okay? Now, I like to think of this pew as real. This is material stuff, and I can stub my toe on it, and it hurts. So I look at that pew, and I think, that's real. How many of you agree that the pew is real? Okay, I go out, and I knock my head off a tree, and I'm like, the tree is real. It's material. But what Hebrews is telling us is, in verse 3, that this pew and that tree, this stuff that we think is so real, has something behind it that is more real, if you will. And what is more real than the pew or the tree is the God who made the stuff of the pew and the tree. Are you with me? 
Now, the God who made that is not tangible to us. The Bible says that stuff was made by the what? The Word of God, which is unseen. So in actuality, this is, the, this is the crux of faith, I am believing and trusting in something that I can't see. Now, there's lots of evidence for it. I'm not, I'm not going down an apologetics road right here. But I'm trusting and believing in something that I can't see more than the stuff that I can see because it is more real. What has made it is more real than what it is. And the problem largely for Christianity today is we are stuck looking at and watching and paying attention to the stuff that we can see. And God is in the background saying that to God, that is insanity. That is insanity. That is what is driving people crazy because we're looking to something that is the less real thing. He says what was made is made out of things that are not visible. And then he goes on to describe this in the lives of some people. But I want you to go to verse 6. It says, without faith it's impossible to please him because anyone who would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. And he uses Noah as an example. And he says, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events that were yet unseen... In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All right. Noah, if you ask the average child why was Noah saved, because he was a good man, because he built the ark. Okay. Let's look a little bit more deeply at this. Noah had faith enough to believe in a warning that was visible or invisible. Had Noah ever seen a flood? No. Had Noah ever seen rain? No. Had Noah ever seen an ark? No. Okay, Noah had had never seen any of these things, but he heard God say to him, Hey, Noah, I know you don't know what rain is. I know nobody's ever seen a worldwide flood, but Noah, I want you to know something. Soon and very soon, I'm going to send a flood, and what you need to do is you need to build a really big boat. Okay? Now, I want you to picture Noah doing this in his day, because the analogy that Jesus used for us is, hey, Shelley, I know you can't see it right now. I know it seems like a pipe dream or something way down the road, but like there's this time of tribulation that's going to come on the earth. There's this time of great upheaval that's going to happen, and I'm actually going to come back to the earth and judge it. You can't see it. But I'm warning you by my word that it's going to happen. Now, here's the deal. What Noah did was he said, I'm going to believe what I can't see. I'm going to believe a God that I can't see. And I'm going to take what he tells me out of the spiritual realm. Now, watch this. And bring it back into the what? The physical realm. Because you can't, listen, you cannot deny Noah could have stood and put his hands up in the air and praised God all day long and said, I believe you, God. I believe you're going to do all this. He could have stand around, praise the Lord, and he could have been a member in his church and said, I believe that the flood is coming. But until the day came that he picked up the hammer and the saw and started building the ark, he really didn't have what? He didn't have faith. Now listen, this is big. He got out physical, tangible things, and he started, with the help of probably friends and family, he started building a giant boat in the physical realm. He believed what he saw in the spiritual, brought it back to the physical, and did it. Okay? What are we doing? I ask us this question. Are you building an ark? Because you can stand all day in church. You can come to Northern Lines every Sunday. You can put your hands up in the air. Lord, I believe you. You can tell your friends, I profess Jesus Christ as Savior. I believe the God of the Bible. Well, listen, the God of the Bible says, I'm coming back. It won't be long. And I'm bringing serious judgment upon the earth. And you need to, what? Build an ark of safety. And when he says that, he doesn't mean it's some like, ooh, spiritual thing out there. 
No. Like for me, it's like, Shelly, okay, so you need to pray for your youth group. You need to go in. You need to make sure that those kids understand the truth. You need to do the tangible stuff of praying with them and of working with your youth leaders. You need to work on hope and passion ministries. You need to actually read the Bible. You need to actually talk to the unsaved people. You have to, the rubber has to meet the road. You've got to bring what you believe in the spiritual realm into the physical realm. Because listen, if Noah would have never built the ark, he would have been swept away with everybody else. That's what James means when he says faith without works is dead. So you can claim anything you want about your Christianity. You can talk all day long, Jesus this, Jesus that, I'm a Christian, I'm this and that. But you show me by what you're doing with your life that you believe in something greater than this. Now, when you do that, it's dangerous, it's dangerous territory. But this is an exciting story. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's pick it up where we left off. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Now, here's the deal. So Paul says, we're boasting about you because you're being severely persecuted. You're having a rough time of it. But what you are doing is you're enduring. You're sticking it out. You're staying with God no matter how rough or how tough this thing gets. And I think of one of my favorite guys of history was William Tyndale. Anybody know about him? William Tyndale. What did he do? He was the, the, the first guy to translate the... Bible into English from the original Greek in 1525. He gave us the New Testament from Greek to English. He had a vision that people should be able to read the Word of God. Now, William Tyndale, how did he end up dying? A nice, peaceful, natural death, right? No. Yeah, for for us having the Bible in our hands today, William Tyndale was strangled to death and his body was burned at the stake. And when I think, like you should, you, you need to, you know, get a video on William Tyndale and, and watch. When, when I think of the great men of God throughout the centuries, even contemporary, I think of him being tied to that stake and being strangled as they lit the fire beneath him. And I think, what did the people around him think when they were doing that to him? And he refused to recant, you know. What was happening? And listen, here's what was happening. Look in your Bibles at verse 5. Paul says, when you endure, even though it gets that rough, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. When you stand under, under great pressure from the enemy, it's evidence that God is right. Now, Paul said something similar to this. You don't have to turn there, but it's Philippians chapter 1. Paul said this. He said, I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and do not be frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, you know what? Okay? Hold on and endure, because if you endure and the enemy, Satan himself and all his minions, watch that happen, and human beings watch you endure under great stress and strain and persecution, what that is really evidence of is that God is true. And that's like when I think of William Tyndale, I think, well, the only thing I can stand back and think is that man really believed in a reality to give his life for it. Amen? He really believed. It's evidence that God's judgment is is right. And how many of you in your life have ever seen a saint of God truly, truly, truly suffer continually? Has anybody ever known a Christian? And you step back, you look at their life, you thought, how do they keep serving God? Look at the, look at what their life. Look at how difficult their life has been. Look at how the enemy has chased them. Look at the problems they face. And doesn't that make you step back and say? Their God must be, he must be real, okay? Now, if our endurance through difficulty is evidence that God is real, do you think God's going to pull us out of all difficulty? I was walking through Walmart the other day, and I was in a really bad way. I was in a very bad mood. I was very upset about some things, nearly on the point of tears. I'm walking through Walmart by myself. And I ran into a gentleman who 
I don't know. I think he's relate. He's come to our church before, and he's heard me speak before. And I was so down in the dumps, and he looked at me, and there was something he said. He said, you know, I was just praying the other day, and I was thinking of you. I was thinking how you told us one time how bad you continue to struggle with that disease of yours, but you won't give up on God. And he hugged me, and he said, thank you. You know, he said what he was going through, and I thought... Swallow that pill, Shelly. Okay? You don't know who is watching you. You don't know, and you don't know what it's doing for them. I believe that many reasons that God doesn't take me out of the firing zone that I'm in is because people are watching. And it's not about my comfort. Amen? It's about showing that God is real. So here, so here's what happens. So he says, this is evidence of God. Now watch this. Here's where it gets wild. He says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just. Now watch this. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is laid in a manger of hay under a starry sky, Okay, this is where where we're talking about what Mike was referring to, the waiting, the advent. Listen, the Jesus who came as a lamb that we celebrate at Christmas, not coming back as a lamb, coming back as a lion. Okay, now watch this, watch this. He said, God considers it just. Now, it doesn't, we have weird ideas of justice and we, what we think is right and wrong, but the Bible says that God, who is the definer of reality, says it is going to be right and just to repay with affliction those who afflict the children of God and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. I considered like sometimes when I'm, thinking, what should I post on Facebook today? Here's a good verse. Do you think all the Facebook people out in Facebook land would like this? Jesus is coming back to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Okay? This is the untold gospel. This is the part of the gospel nobody wants to hear. And I was walking in the hallways while, you know, about 6 o'clock, and I was thinking about my message, and I'm thinking, people probably sometimes think I'm crazy because everybody, the gospel is good news. And then I, something hit me. You can't have good news unless there's something bad from which you are saved. If it's all neutral, then there's nothing good. You get it? It's the good news because we're being saved from something really, really bad. And so I hate when people walk around and say, just believe the good news of Jesus. All is roses and abuse. Listen, there is judgment coming and the good news is you don't have to be a part of it. But the only reason there's good news is because there is bad news. And the bad news is God is going to do this. Look at this. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and that's two different groups. You know, you talk about Gentiles or people who have never had the gospel presented to them, yet they still have general revelation they need to respond to. Then you have, you know, the Jews or people who have the law, who've been in church, and they just refuse the gospel that they hear. But at any route, if you reject God, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, this is some kind of God. I want to take you back now to Exodus chapter 15. Go way back to the beginning. Well, actually, no. Before we go to Exodus 15, I'm sorry. Go to Revelation. Way to the other end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 15. Now, speaking of the wrath of God and Him coming to bring vengeance. Here's something you don't want to read for devotions before you go to sleep at night. Revelation 16. Okay? It's not exactly like a one to read before bed. But it's truth. 
Okay, Revelation 16, we aren't going to go there, but it's the seven bowls of God's wrath. What we're going to read is the precursor to the last seven bowls of God's wrath that he's going to pour out at the end of the tribulation. And it is some nasty stuff. Now, you can't say to me, well, Shelley, I don't want to believe that part of the Bible. Do you want to believe John 3.16? Do you want, to be- do you want John 3.16 to be true? Well, Revelation 16 has to be true then, too. Okay, so here we go. If you, if you look at, by the way, Revelation 16, the kind of stuff I'm talking about, verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of the God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Okay, so what we have in Revelation 15, this is right before the pouring out of the last of God's wrath. And by the way, praise the Lord, there's coming a day when the last of his wrath will be poured out and he will usher in his kingdom. Okay, but here's what happens. Revelation 15, the apostle John said, I saw another sign in heaven, verse 1, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Now, I want to stop there. And I want you to just slip a page or two back to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And hold your thumb there, because what we're talking about, when we're talking about the people who've overcome the beast and the number, you know, we hear all this stuff about the end of times, the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, all right? These people that we're reading about in Revelation 15 are the martyrs who make it through the tribulation and do not take the mark of the beast. They say, I'm going to stay true to God. And we know for a fact that anyone who goes through the tribulation and trusts in God will be martyred. They will give their lives. Okay, so those are the people we're talking about. They are also referred to here in Revelation chapter 12, verse verse 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who's that? Who accuses you? Who says you're bad, you're sinful? That's Satan. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Now watch. That verse, these martyrs are like a far out, succinct, powerful picture of what should be true of every Christian. We overcome Satan by the what? The blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony. We have to believe that the blood of Jesus has really saved us. We have to be testimony, by the way, in the Bible. The word testimony and the word martyr come from the same root. You have to be willing to testify to your God to the point of death said they love not their lives even to death. Now, in their case, it literally meant they gave their physical lives. They were beheaded. They were killed. Whatever the Antichrist and that terrible world system that will be set up does in that day, they died for Jesus. Now, lest you think that's too wild of a story, what did Jesus say to every single one of us? If anyone would come after me, take up his cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life, okay? So this is, but these are the people. So back to Revelation chapter 15. They had conquered the beast in its image. So they've come through the tribulation. They gave their lives. They came through this horrible time, this beginning of the pouring out of the wrath of God. And the Bible, here's what struck me. Verse 3. I, I was reading this. I was down in my, in my game room and I was reading this and I was pacing through when I was reading it. And I remember the moment my jaw dropped open. I, these are the martyrs of the tribulation in some indefinite point in the future. We don't know when it's going to happen. Verse 3, and what song did they sing? They sang the song of Moses. What? 
Moses lived 3,500 years ago from now. And these people who survived the tribulation are going to stand and sing the song of Moses. I love that the Bible is just all one piece. (laughs) If they can sing the song of Moses, so can I. Amen? In the interim. So let's go back and look at the song of Moses. Don't you want to know what it is now? I said this, I don't know, in Sunday school class, did anybody when they were young ever sing that song, uh, the Lord has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea? Dave, you, you just keep shaking your head. That, so I just say, burst into song there, Dave. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, this, this is a song that I used to sing when I was little. Look at the song of Moses. What is the song of Moses? Here's what the martyrs of the tribulation are going to sing. Exodus 15, verse 1. Now, the song, by the way, was sung after God delivered the people out of Egypt. Do you remember that story? Just let me make sure you understand something. Egypt, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, that was a picture of being unsaved. It's a picture of what it's like when you are enslaved to sin. How many of you can remember a time... I got saved when I was pretty young, but sin still can enslave. How many of you can remember the very real way how sin puts you in bondage? Okay? So Egypt is a picture of being enslaved to sin. And what God did was he thrust his people out of Egypt to the promised land, and that's a picture of salvation. Going from enslavement to sin, unsaved, to salvation. Going from being lost to heaven... But in the meantime, you've got some ground to cover. You've got this waiting time. So God delivered them out of Egypt, but he takes them to this place purposely where they're right in front of the Red Sea. And you remember what happens, right? After Pharaoh got so disgusted with the plagues and finally let the people go, after they're gone... These hundreds of thousands, these millions of people, Pharaoh, who's a type of Satan, by the way, okay? He's a picture of what Satan is like. Pharaoh sat back and he said, wait a second, that's all my free labor. Who's going to build my kingdom? Now, this this is what's critical. I told the youth group this. The minute you walk out of the kingdom of darkness, Satan steps back and says, wait a second, my kingdom's going to suffer. And he is coming after you. Okay? This is why I get very suspicious of Christians or groups of Christians who claim that Christianity is an easy, prosperous, calm kind of thing. Uh Uh-uh. You get thrust out of the kingdom of darkness by the blood of Jesus Christ and you start marching in the kingdom of his dear son, the devil is coming after you. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did. He starts marching after. He gets 600 of his best chariots and his fighting men. He goes over these Israelites who are just, they're on foot. They're caught. The Red Sea is in front of them. God puts them there on purpose. The Red Sea is in front of them. They can hear the enemy behind. They can feel Satan breathing down their necks. And they're going and they're crying out, what's going to happen? God, why are you letting this happen? And you remember what God says. Moses He says, just stretch out your arm over the sea. I'm going to divide the sea in half. And God did. He literally divided the Red Sea in half. There was a wall of water on the right, a wall of water on the left, and God's people walked through on dry ground. By the way, that's a picture of the way is very narrow. If they would have stepped to the left or to the right, they would have died. Okay? You can't play around with God. You're going to walk his way. You've got to walk in holiness. You've got to walk his way. So they start walking through wall water. And then you know what happens? Pharaoh says, you're going through there? And this is what I love. Pharaoh had some faith in God, didn't he? Because he was looking at the parted sea, and he knew that had to be a miracle. Water doesn't divide in half. And he says, I'm going to go through there too. 
So he starts marching his people through, and, and he starts going through, and the Israelites are looking back, well, they're, now they're coming after us. But after the Israelites were completely through, the Bible says that God threw the Egyptians into some confusion, and their wheels started to get off kilter. And the next thing you know, God blows a mighty wind, and all the water comes down on Pharaoh and the enemy, and they all what? Drown. They all died. And then Moses and the people of God sing the song of Moses. Watch this. The Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Listen, for God to get the victory, some beings... And some people are going to go down. Do you understand? The good news is only good because you're saved from something bad. And this is where it gets serious. Here's where we have to get serious about what we're doing with God. About our witness, about our evangelism, about where we're at. He said, I will sing for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he threw into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Now look at verse 3. Here's a memory verse. Did you ever know this is in the Bible? Here's the verse. Exodus 15.3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now I, want to, I want that to sink into your mind. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. There is a cosmic battle that is taking place, and God is dead serious about it. And it's high time the church of Jesus Christ get dead serious about it. There's a battle going on. Now watch this. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow our adversaries. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Now look at verse 9. Check this out. The enemy, who is Pharaoh, which is a type of Satan, the enemy and all the demons in hell said, I will pursue them. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I'll draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this. I have felt it like nobody's business in my life, sometimes more particularly than others. But I have felt at times there is a mark on my back. And Satan himself is in all of the powers of hell. He's looking and he's saying, Shelly Prindle, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to overtake you. You're going down. And generally speaking, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are having any impact of over the kingdom of darkness at all, the enemy's got a mark on your back. And he's looking at you. You're going through the Red Sea. You're walking towards your deliverance. You're impacting for the kingdom of God. And don't you be fooled. There is a mark on your back and the enemy says, you know what? I will pursue. I will overtake. I will destroy. What I told the youth group a couple weeks ago when God laid this on our hearts was this. He will pursue. See, there's only one part of this verse that he gets right. Because the enemy is a thief. Okay? He's a liar. There's only one part that he got right. He will pursue. But he cannot. Cannot overtake. Amen? And here's what I told the, here's what I told the youth group to, to picture it as. I said... You picture me, say that I'm running down the road somewhere and there's like this bad guy chasing me, you know, who represents the devil. And he's chasing me and I can, I can hear his, uh, his footsteps behind me and he, he starts to get closer. I can almost feel his breath. I feel his threats. He's gaining ground. He's getting closer and closer. I'm running. I'm running. The enemy's behind me. I said, kids, it's going to happen. You've got a mark on your back now. You're making an impact for Jesus Christ and the enemy hates you. And I said, but all the while where you run running, you picture this. He can pursue, but he can never overtake. 
I'm running along, and as soon as the, the, the breath of the enemy feels hot on my neck, I used Paul Tierney as an example because he's a pretty big guy and he was standing right there. I said, I'm running. The enemy's behind me. He's all dressed in black. He's trying to take me down. I just picture Paul Tierney as Jesus. And here's what happens. Just when he gets close enough to kind of reach me, Jesus jumps all over him, takes him down to the ground. He will never overtake you. Amen? God will destroy the enemy in time. Hallelujah. Right? We need to remember that. The enemy said, I will overtake, but here's what God said, verse 10. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. What did Israel do to destroy the enemy? Nothing. Who did it? God. How did he do it specifically here? He what? He blew with his wind. You don't have to turn there now, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says of the Antichrist, it says, Then the man of lawlessness will appear, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that something? How is he going to destroy the Antichrist? He's just going to go, see you later. And that's what he did. He blew. Now, when God blows his wind, that's always representative of the Holy Spirit. So he blows his Holy Spirit. He blows his wind and the enemy is destroyed. Okay, fast forward. We're going to close it up by fast forwarding to the tribulation and the end of time. Go back to Revelation. These martyrs are singing the song of Moses. So the song of Moses must have something to do with the great news for you and I that, that we are going to actually witness. Now, we, were, we weren't there 3,500 years ago to see the Red Sea be parted, were we? Wouldn't that have been cool, though? A little scary, but how many of you would have liked to have been there? You think that was exciting. Wait till you see this. Okay? Wait till you see this. And this isn't fairy tale. This is true. This is like, you want to read your kids some good stories like that's really true? Look at this. Okay? Revelation chapter 19. We're going to advance. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 19. All right. This is cool stuff. So the tribulation, the wrath of God has been poured out. The tribulation has come to an end. And now God steps up to the plate to wipe out the enemy, to do what he did back at the Red Sea. And here's how it's going to go down. Verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and what? What does it say? Makes war. Does that sound familiar? Exodus 15.3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Check this out. Now, by the way, who is this describing here? Since it's a capital F and a capital T, does anybody know? It's describing the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, watch this. This ain't no baby in a manger. Watch this. The one sitting on is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Okay, he's not crying wanting his bottle anymore while he's a baby. Now his eyes are flaming fire. And on his head are many diadems. By the way, when he came the first time, what kind of crown did they give him? Talk about sweet justice. He had to wear a crown of thorns for our sake. But when he comes back the second time, he's wearing many diadems to represent that he's the king of all nations. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I love that too because when he died on the cross, what did they put mockingly above him when he died on the cross? Anybody remember? Mockingly they wrote, he is the king of the Jews. Now, they were really telling the truth. He really is the king of the Jews. But I love when he comes back the second time, there ain't no little sign mocking who he is. He has a name so great, nobody can even really understand it. Because God is so above and so much greater than us. Now look at verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. When he came the first time, when did they put the robe on him? Do you remember? After what? After he was scourged and beaten, they mockingly put a robe on him. Well, now he's got a different robe on. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, scholars, 
There's a bit of a debate. Is that Christians? Is that the saved who are coming back with him? Is it angelic uh, forces? I personally believe that that will be you and I. We aren't going to have to do any fighting, but we are with him. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. No mocking reed will they put in his hand this time to make fun of him. He has a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at this. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The grapes of God's wrath are laid out, and they're waiting. And there is one person who has worthy enough to tread upon those grapes, to spill out, to flood the earth with the wrath of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. This next part here, verse 17, is wild stuff. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is not a supper you want to be at. This is not the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's not for Christians. Check this out. You know, when I read this, I used to read this to my students when I taught in Christian high school. And I'd make them stop there and put their thumb over 18 and not read any further. And I'd say, doesn't that sound cool? An angel standing in the glistening sun. The angel's making the invitation. Hey, come to the supper. It's going to be a great time. We're serving good food here. And you you get this picture. Wow, what kind of supper is this going to be? No. Verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. Does that sound familiar? He has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. And the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. That's Jesus. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, it would have been some sight to see all the Egyptians on the seashore after they were drowned, to see their dead bodies, to know that they were gone. But we are going to watch the utter destruction of the devil. And every power that is under him and every person who refuses the grace of Jesus Christ and who gives in to the devil... And as you watch the progression of this in Revelation chapter 20, this is interesting to me. Uh, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the, the, the nations anymore. And after that, he'll be released for a little while. Then you go down to verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. He's going to try to destroy everybody again. The re- what struck me the other day when I was reading that is, really? You lock this character up for a thousand years in a bottomless pit? He's in a bottomless pit for a thousand years, bound. He can do absolutely nothing about it. And the minute you take the cover off the pit and let him come out, he, he still thinks he can do something? Isn't that crazy? And I think what God is trying to show us is the absolute relentless nature of the devil. Amen? The absolute relentless nature of the devil. He will never stop trying to tear you down with discouragement. He will never stop trying to take your life. He will never stop tempting you. He will never stop discouraging you. He will never give up his relentless attack against the children of God who are moving forward by the grace of God for the kingdom of God. Amen? 
Never. He is absolutely relentless. And he is also one of the most stupid beings on the face of the earth. Because when the thousand years are ended, he comes out, he gathers these forces together, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, verse 9. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now skip to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was thrown into the lake of fire. The devil is absolutely relentless. You've got to call him for who he is. When I got up and I announced this this morning, I took you to 1 Peter chapter 4. The Bible says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Here's how he does it. He's at you when you're in your living room. Tempting you to waste your days watching television instead of studying and reading and praying. He's at you at your weak spot. Whatever thing it is you're tempted to be addicted to, whatever thing it is is tempted to take over your mind, he's there to try to make it happen. He's there to tempt you to sin, to not treat brothers and sisters in Christ the way you ought to, to cause division in the body of Christ. He is absolutely, positively relentless. If he can be bound in a pit for a thousand years and come out all fired up, it's crazy. But here's the thing. God says that the song that Moses and the people sang is the song the martyrs of the tribulation will sing because in both cases, God gets the victory and the enemy goes down. In the interim, we've got to sing the same song. Amen? And we've got to know in our minds, this is serious. This isn't a game. You don't come to church on Sunday morning to feel good about yourself. You come to church to find out what reality is. And it's serious. There are lives at stake. And may the song of Moses, which is the song of the martyrs that come through the tribulation, be the song of Shelley Prindle and everyone in this room. May we take it seriously, and may we know that God has triumphed gloriously. And in every moment of our lives, may we submit everything to him. Because I don't want people I love, people I know and I am responsible for, to be destroyed. Amen? I want them to know the truth. And it's not just in me preaching the gospel. It's how I live. It's who I am. My life. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, we come before you and we've seen tonight just a grand overarching truth of your word. I just, Lord, I can't believe the way you tie your word together so beautifully and show us what the truth is. And Lord, I just... I know that I am and I believe that so many of us, we stand guilty before you and not taking seriously enough who you are and what you're doing, where this whole thing is headed. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You're serious, God, about overcoming unrighteousness and taking down the devil. And you want us to be serious about the same. And I'm just praying right now in Jesus' name that you would cause us in these moments to just look deep inside and say, could I stand with the Thessalonians and would God be able to say of me that I remain steadfast in my faith despite many persecutions and afflictions? And will it be able to be said of me that no matter what temptations the enemy brought, Temptations to just mediocrity and a wasted life, a lack of evangelism, a lack of passion for God, bound by sin. 
Will it be able in the end to be said of me that I overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony? Will it be able to be said that Shelley Prindle loved not her life even unto death? And it's funny, God, because when I think of that, I think we'd like to be able to say that we love not our lives even unto death, and yet we love our lives so much we won't even give up bitterness. We won't even give up anger. We won't even give up unkindness. We won't even give up backbiting and gossip. We want to say that we would give up our lives for you, but we won't even give up laziness about knowing your word. We won't even give up a couple hours of television to seek your face. We say we'd give our lives for you, but we won't even give up our sin. God, I pray in Jesus' name that the song of Moses might be our song. That we would be able to say that the Lord has triumphed gloriously. And that we have overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ and the word of our testimony, having not even loved our lives unto death. Because you are coming back. And it won't be like you did the first time. And I just pray that you'd help us to think of every person we know who is lost in sin. Every family member, every friend, every neighbor that we have that does not know that full story. God, make us serious about your business. And may we sing the song of Moses all the days of our lives until that great and glorious day when you come back to make things right. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.